Have you ever been let down by somebody you thought you could trust? I read a story this week of a a grandmother who lives in Manila by the name of Gina Cruz. Back in the 90s, she was struggling financially and she was so excited because Pepsi-Cola was having a contest that they were giving away 1 million pesos, which is about the equivalent at that time of $40,000 for the proper pop top. So she began to collect them. Some she drank, others she just found and gathered them, and she had hundreds of caps, and she was so excited. The evening they were announcing the proper number, and to her shock, she won once, and then twice, and she fainted. The next morning, she found out that Pepsi had made a mistake. Instead of 18 winning numbers, they had printed 800,000 winning numbers, and nobody was going to win. My guess is every single one of us in this room have been let down by someone, an employer, an employee, a, a family member, a coworker, a friend. But what happens if it's God who said, oops, didn't really mean that. I'm just going to pretend like I didn't say that. That may seem like not that big of a question, but I think it's going to be really important because the whole Bible is built upon God being trustworthy. We could spend the rest of the morning going through scriptures, but let me just pick a few. Numbers 23 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, or will he not fulfill it? Joshua, at the end of his life, says, Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all of the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. In 2 Samuel, we read, And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you promised this good to your servant. In John, Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Paul, in his letter to Titus, says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies promised before the ages began why is that a big deal well we find ourselves in the book of Romans and if you have been with us the whole time you understand we're kind of working from this outline that Paul divides the book into four major sections the first is to explain how a person is justified and you were with us we went through the first three chapters clearly laid out that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and then beginning in chapter four and five Paul explains how salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and then in chapter six he turns and he begins to talk about how do justified people live? And then beginning in chapter 12, he's going to talk about how justified people live together. But in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about Israel. Now, I, I don't know for certain, but I'm guessing there are no Jews here this morning. So why don't we just skip it? Why do we even bother with chapters 9 to 11? In fact, many speakers, some very well known, have come to chapters 9 through 11, and just say, eh, they don't really apply to us. Let's just skip them. May I suggest they do? Because at the very foundation is whether or not God can be trusted. 
I don't have time this morning to, to go through the entirety of the Old Testament, but God has made some pretty stark promises to Israel. Beginning in chapter 12, he calls Abraham out of the era of Chaldees and says, I, I will make a great nation out of you. I will make your name great. I will bless all people through you. And Abraham leaves the Ur, and he comes, and he sadly in chapter 14 goes down into Egypt. But in chapter 15, God comes back with the promise restated. He takes him out, and he says, Look towards the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Paul is going to take number, verse number six and build an entire chapter, Romans chapter four, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But chapter 15 is one of the most bizarre chapters in the book of Genesis. Because God takes Abraham out and he shows him the stars and they look at the stars. Then God says, I want you to go collect all kinds of animals and cut them in half and lay them on the ground. And then Abraham goes to sleep. What in the world is going on? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't sign contracts like we do today. They didn't have handshake agreements. It was very commonplace that when you were entering into a, a, a relationship, a covenant with somebody, you would take an animal, you would split the animal, and you would grab the other person's hand, and you would walk through that dead animal saying, if I back out on my part, may I become like this animal? It was a life and death kind of situation. In Genesis chapter 15, God has Mo, or Abraham kill all of these animals, and then as he sleeps, the fire of God passes through the middle of them. Because the covenant wasn't based on Abraham. It was based on God alone. And he was saying to Abraham, may I cease to exist if I don't follow through on my promise to you. In fact, chapter 17, he's going to add an eternal aspect to it. In fact, three times in that one chapter, he is going to call this an everlasting covenant. It's not a temporary covenant. It's not limited by anything the Jews do. It is a covenant based entirely upon the character and the word of God that he has chosen Israel as his people. In fact, in chapter, uh, or Psalm 105, he writes it this way. He is the Lord of all. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Now, there's lots of disagreements as to exactly how long a generation is. 25 to 40 years is pretty much accepted. Even if you choose the smallest of those, that means from the time of Abraham, God has promised for at least 25,000 years to remain faithful to Israel. Spoiler, Abraham didn't live that long ago. Maybe 4,000. But he continues, the covenant that I made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And then you come to, to 2 Samuel, and God chooses a king that will sit on the throne forever. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you, speaking of David, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but the steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He comes in Psalm 89, and he makes much the same, but I, I think my favorite is in Jeremiah 32, where Jeremiah, as the nation of Israel, is about prepared to experience some of that punishment. They're about ready to go off to Babylon in captivity. God says to Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it raves, its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. As long as there's still part of the heavens we haven't explored, you know what I really find fascinating? The further we get technologically speaking, the bigger the universe becomes. We are no closer today to knowing the end of the universe than we were a thousand years ago. We just know it's bigger today. And what God says to, to Jeremiah is that as long as there are stars to be seen and waves to be enjoyed, Israel will continue to be my people. Has God rejected Israel? Well, as we come to chapter 11, Paul is going to begin the chapter by saying, I ask then, did God reject his people? And as emphatically as is possible in the Greek language, Paul says, the NIV translates it by no means. The King James translated it, God forbid. Absolutely not. Now, you might have thought that where we were last week. If you were here last week, we ended in chapter 10. And we ended with Israel being a disobedient and obstinate people. People that had rejected all that God had offered as God stands there with his arms wide open. They say, no thanks. So is God done with Israel? Paul's argument in chapter 11 is really gonna fall around four points. He's gonna say Israel's rejection is partial. It's purposeful. God's setting aside Israel so that the Gentiles can be included and by including the Gentiles, making the Jews jealous and then all Israel will be saved. And then he stops and as Paul often does, has one of those uncontrollable explosions of praise. We're not going to have time this morning, or I should say we're not going to take the time to go through the entire chapter. We're just going to look at the first one. Next week we'll look at the purposeful and the passing nature of God's rejection. And then Thanksgiving weekend we're going to spend the morning concentrating on the majesty and the wonder of God. But this morning I, I would like to read all of Romans chapter 11. I know it's a somewhat lengthy passage, but I, I do think it's important to just get the context. So please bear with me as I read Romans chapter 11. And Paul writes these words. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elected, the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so they could not hear to this very day. And David said, may their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forward. Again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered to the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, and if you do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again." After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarch. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God now receive mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. For the few moments this morning, I do want to just consider those first 10 verses. And it really centers around this whole idea of a remnant. Remnant is probably not a word that we use a lot in English. 
And if we do, it usually refers to cloth. Several years ago, the, the room that the youth were using for Sunday school needed some carpet. We didn't want to buy a full sheet of carpet, so we went to the store and asked for a remnant. And yes, we were able to find a remnant that fits, and it was not the same price because it was what was left over. The remnant becomes a really big part of the Old Testament story. God, numerous times in the Old Testament, will talk about the remnant. And Paul brings the remnant up that God's judgment against Israel is only partial because there is a remnant, and he is part of the remnant. I think it's really important to notice the way he describes himself. He is an Israelite. If you remember back in chapter two, Paul talks about this spiritual Israel. He says a man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by written code. Such a man's praise is not from him, but from God. And Paul will talk about this spiritual Israel that even Gentiles can be part of. But that's not what he's talking about in chapter 11. He was a descendant of the Israelites, a descendant of Abraham, and even of the tribe of Benjamin. His point begins is, if there is one person who is a Jew and a follower of Jesus, then God can't have rejected all of us. I fear sometimes we don't recognize the significance of Paul being chosen. As you study through scripture, one of the ways you can figure out which stories are really important is how often they're repeated. The resurrection is repeated in all four gospels. It begins in the book of Acts, chapter one. Paul, on numerous occasions, in fact, all of the gospel writers will reference the resurrection. So yes, you should figure out the resurrection is important. Paul's conversion is not shared once, but three times in the book of Acts. Why? I think he's going to give us the answer when he comes to 1 Timothy, the end of his life, he's going to make the point, God chose me, the worst of sinners, so that everyone understands they're not too far gone. But Paul's conversion is a fascinating one, and he shares it in chapter 8, he shares it in chapter uh, six, 18, he shares it in chapter 26, and I, I want to just read that. As he stands in front of the judges, he says, the Je Jews all know the way that I have lived since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest set of religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I was too convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. 
And on one of those journeys, I was going to the city of Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's story was that he was openly persecuting, and yes, if need be, killing those who were followers of the way. And on that glorious day, he met Jesus. And he became, as he describes himself in this passage, the apostle to the Gentiles. I was struck by a thought this morning. Why didn't God choose a Gentile to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Why didn't he choose Cornelius? You can go back and read the story in Acts chapter 10 where Cornelius is the first Gentile of prominence that becomes a follower of Jesus. Why doesn't he become the the apostle to the Gentiles? Doesn't that make more sense? If you're gonna send an apostle to the Gentile, why wouldn't you send a Gentile to the Gentiles? I don't know if you've stopped to think about it, but the entire Bible you have sitting on your lap is a Jewish book. Maybe Luke was a Gentile. We're, we're not 100% sure. But all the rest of the writers are Jews. All of those who began were Jews. And Paul was a Jew, and yet God chose a Jew to bring the gospel to Gentiles. We gather in large part this morning because Paul listened to God and came to Europe, and the gospel followed him. Paul says that even though I am preaching to the Gentiles, never forget I'm a Jew, and my heart is with the Jews. God hasn't abandoned them all. And then he turns to this whole election argument. If you were with us in chapter nine, we wrestled through uh, some of these uh, election questions and I don't really wanna go clear back to there because those are some pretty tough questions. But I think it's interesting. Paul is going to make this statement. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. There's a lot of discussion when you come to chapter eight uh, of Romans where Paul lays out this golden chain, those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And many want to come to that very beginning and say foreknowledge is simply the fact that God knew beforehand what was going to happen, and the reason he foreknew those is he knew based upon what you would choose. That makes a lot of sense in English. Makes very little sense in Hebrew. It's actually he forloved them. He chose a relationship, and Paul is saying the opposite of foreknowledge is rejection, not ignorance. See, foreknowledge is not just simply that God knew something would happen, and so he put in play a plan because he already knew that was going to happen. 
Yes, God already knew. But foreknowledge is that God, in his infinite wisdom, chooses some. He can say the Jews haven't been rejected because, remember, I chose them. But then he moves on to Elijah. Now, I have to admit, I really wanted to spend the whole morning on Elijah. Elijah is one of the great stories, but my original plan was to get through the book of Romans in a year. If you've been here for a couple years, you'll remember we spent the first two months in Romans back in 2020, and then COVID struck and we set it aside, and so I thought, for sure I can get it done this year. Well, we're going to make it all the way through chapter 11 this year. I've got a couple more sermons, and we're going to talk about Christmas, and we'll come back to chapter 12 in the first part of next year. And so I concluded I can't take an entire morning on Elijah, but boy, I would love to. Elijah is just one of those amazing stories. It begins back in chapter 17 that Elijah comes to, to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, maybe the most wicked person in all of the Old Testament. And he says, it's not going to rain until I return. And for three years, we had a dry summer this year. Imagine if we went three years without rain. And finally, he returns and he draws up this huge confrontation. Let's see who the true God is. And brings him to Mount Carmel. And he says to the prophets of Baal, you pray. You ask for your God to bring fire. And then he prays and God sends the fire and it's consumed. And all 3,000 of the prophets of Baal are killed. And I really do believe that Elijah expected revival to break out that they would all turn from their gods and begin to worship the one true God. But rather than revival, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And in one of the most amazing turns in all of the Old Testament, this man who could stand in front of maybe 100,000 people and with great boldness has a single lady threaten him. And he runs back to Mount Sinai and spends 40 days without eating and has maybe the greatest of all pity parties the world has ever seen. Woe is me. Woe is me. My life stinks. And after 40 days, God comes. And God, Paul paraphrases, not quotes from the Old Testament, but Paul states it this way, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I am convinced the remnant is always bigger than we think it is. My guess is that as you watch the chaos break out around us, it is really easy to conclude nobody wants to follow Christ. I think Elijah found out that the remnant is always bigger. I think we will find out someday in heaven the remnant is bigger. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. One of the parts of the rest of the story of Elijah that I wish God had chosen to include, how many of those 7,000 do you think Elijah ever got to meet? Wouldn't it have been great to sit down in one building with all 7,000 of them? Well, he didn't get to meet many, but we suddenly are introduced to a friend. One of the rabbits I'd really like to chase is that when we are alone, discouragement is considerably easier but the rest of Elijah's life standing next to him was a young man named Elisha 
And until the very moment that God took Elijah out of this world on that chariot of fire, Elisha was standing, learning, listening, and ready to work. I think we would be wise to find an Elisha. Back to our normally scheduled sermon. He uses the Elijah argument as, yes, at the darkest points. And what's really fascinating to me is Elijah doesn't come at the end of Israel when the entire nation was preparing for judgment to fall upon it. No, it was towards the beginning of the empires. And even then, at that darkest moment when Jezebel and Ahab reigned, God kept a remnant. There's always been a remnant. In fact, Paul is going to make the argument that even today there's a remnant. Paul was an illustration one of a remnant. But if you go back and you read the book of Acts in chapter two, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches and 3,000 comes to Christ. Follow forward to chapter five, we know there was at least 5,000. As you track through the book of Acts, you will find that Paul's pattern was always to go first to the Jews. Even in Philippi where there wasn't a synagogue, he found the ladies, who the Jewish ladies that were worshiping on the Sabbath, he always went to the Jews. He began there and then when the Jews would not have anything from him, he would leave. If you remember how we introduced the book of Romans, the book that he's writing, it was probably begun by by believers who were there on the day of Pentecost and they returned to the city of Rome and they began a church and the church began to grow and then the emperor Claudius kicks all of the Jews out for what eventually will be five years and then when the Jews return, there is this division in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. The point being, there were Jews in the Jewish church, in the church in Rome. There's always been a remnant. I I, I came across the stat, and I can't prove this is true, but the stat did a survey. There are roughly 14 million Jews on the earth today. Just slightly over half of them, for the first time in two millennium, live in Palestine. The second largest group lives in the United States. But the survey found that 1.3 million, almost 10% of them, claim to be Christians. Now, I didn't say what kind of Christian. It could have been a Roman Catholic. It could have been a Greek Orthodox. It could have been a Protestant. It could have been an Evangelical. Didn't try and figure it out. But nearly 10% of all Jews alive today claim to be a follower of Jesus. There's always a remnant. See, God is not finished with Israel yet. But what do we do with the grace argument? Paul, as is so often the case, Paul can't get past this whole discussion without bringing grace up. In fact, if we had time this morning, which we really don't, I would love to just take a quick survey of the many passages that the Apostle Paul brings back the subject of grace. He's done it twice already in his book to Romans, maybe in the classic passage in Ephesians when he talks about how we can come from death to life, how we can be saved. He says it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. That not of yourselves, this is a gift of God. Not by works, because you'd boast. But the question that I I wanted to just close with is why did the majority of Israel reject and thus eventually the nation as a whole be punished? Because they wouldn't believe. Now, 
I, I included the footnotes. I don't know if your Bible does this or not. If you're reading online, if you have a software, or if you're using your phone, it's really kind of nice because you can go to the footnotes and you can click and it will bring up the passage that's being quoted. Uh, we're quoting here, number C, God gave them a spirit of stupor of eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot, could not hear to this very day. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. And then he's going to quote David, and David is from Psalm 69. And you say, Dan, what's your point? Today, we divide the Old Testament in five major divisions. There's the books of law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of history, then beginning in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, there's the books of poetry. Then we have major prophets and minor prophets. That's not the division the Jews used. The Jews used the division of the law, the division of the prophets, and the division of the writings, which is everything else. Do you notice where Paul chooses to quote from? He grabs a passage from the law, a passage from the prophets, and a passage from the writings. He's, I think, trying to help us understand that we shouldn't be shocked because all of the Old Testament warned us that when we harden our hearts, God may very well come and harden it. And that soon you'll not be able to hear and you'll not be able to see. And salvation will pass you by. One of the most terrifying parts of Scripture is the realization that today is the day of salvation. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You, you may say, well, I will do it when I'm old. I will do it just before I die. And to be sure, some do. But some, most, who say no, God eventually says, all right, that's your decision. I'm okay with it. And I will keep you from ever responding. Yes. The whole story of Pharaoh is this incredible mixture of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh as Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. I wish this wasn't part of the scripture context. I wish I could say that every day will be equal. But Paul, going back to the story of Israel, reminds us that we have no guarantee God's conviction will ever come again. My application is pretty simple. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, don't wait another day. Because there's no guarantee tomorrow will be the day of salvation. Today is. Father, we bow in your presence and I, I thank you for the book of Romans and even though it is Beyond my ability to fully understand, I am so grateful for sending Jesus. I'm so grateful that you have brought Gentiles like myself into your people. And I thank you that you send your spirit to draw us to yourself. God, it is my prayer that no one would leave this morning without having accepted the grace you offer. Thank you for the chance to gather. Thank you for the week ahead. 
And I pray that we would honor and bless you with each breath. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great week.